This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted that you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Nicholas Farina. He's the CEO of AeroQ Quantum Hardware. Nicholas is an operator and investor in early stage special situations, and AeroQ is his third startup. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. He has expertise in joint ventures, complex public private partnerships, and technology transfer. Nick's also a member of the World Economic Forum's Quantum Computing Governance Project and a founding member of the U.S. Quantum Industry Coalition. His company, AeroQ, was founded in 2016 and is a leader in the field of quantum hardware, building a universal quantum computer using electrons on helium. So, Nick, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on today. Nick, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey, if you will. So my objective is certainly to give our audience a sense of what you did before you founded AeroQ but also to orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So you've had quite a range of careers so far. I read on your LinkedIn profile that you spent a summer as a caddy at the Biltmore watching people cheat at golf. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I always, I, I, I like to include on my LinkedIn, you know, the, the whole career. So that was well over 20 years ago, but you I know, love it. I've, I've worked my way up over, over time. <laughs> no, I think it's a great starting point. <laughs> yeah. um, you've also been a financial and tech journalist, and then you went on to start three companies. So tell us about that journey, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied and some insight into the companies that you started, as well as maybe other organizations where you worked. Uh, sure. So, you know, I am evidence that you can come into quantum computing from uh, any number of areas. And my journey into quantum was somewhat accidental. Um, so I'm happy to go into my career in a minute, um, but I'll start um, if you don't mind, with how I got into quantum and yes, then kind of back into the career question. So yeah, great. I was um, a spent my career, entire career prior to AeroQ in software, um, and this is both as a founder, um, an investor in software companies, um, and this was software for both for higher ed as a consultant um, owning an, a digital ad agency. And um, then also travel software, which was by far my least successful venture. And I advise anyone listening, if they're thinking about travel software, to avoid that in industry. You know, I, I had success in, you know, contracted, you know, digital services, and I had success in higher education software. Um, I did not have success in travel software. Um, and very few people have. So... Um, I was, uh, when I was running this digital ad agency, which also, you know, we built websites and, and the whole nine yards and I was, you know, actively involved in, in the software project. So, you know, I, I knew technology, you know, relatively well, but really on the software side, certainly not on the hardware or quantum mechanics side. Uh, but I was in the board of a theater company in Chicago and uh, the, then boyfriend 
now husband, of the executive director, and this was 2012. He was a PhD student at Northwestern during his PhD. And at this time, he hadn't even thought about really quantum computing. His PhD was focused on low temperature physics. um, And in particular, he was interested in superfluids. So being from the software background, I still, you know, I had interest um, in all different types of technologies. So I said, you know, tell me more about what you're working on. And, you know, I was curious to learn more about low temperature physics. And we just became uh, good friends. Um, And then long story short, which will lead into AeroQ, uh, he, um, and uh, his name is Johannes Polinen. Uh, he's a professor now at Michigan State University. Uh, he went to Caltech for his postdoc. And um, I was in LA reasonably often for work. So we stayed in touch while he was at Caltech. And at Caltech, he became more interested in quantum computing as he was part of the IQIM. And then to quickly tie both how I got into quantum, but also why AeroQ was founded. Um, At Caltech, Johannes was exposed to all of these other quantum platforms, uh, computing platforms. And he said, well, you know, a lot of these have roadblocks. um, But as a superfluid guy, he, you know, is an expert in in liquid helium. And he said, you know what? You know, there's this platform that was proposed by Bell Labs and Michigan State University in a paper that was published in Science um, in 1999. And the system, electrons and helium, you know, it hasn't really been explored nearly as much, but if it were to work, it would allow folks to sort of leapfrog a lot of these roadblocks that other technologies have. And so once he got his professorship at Michigan State, we essentially decided to combine, you know, my background in how can you get some funding into a company? I mean, how do you even start a business? And how might we work with the university? Uh, So for example, I had done joint ventures in higher education between nonprofits and for-profits. So I leveraged that into what was a successful uh, four-year sponsored research program with Michigan State. So instead of going out and raising a bunch of money at the beginning, we said, you know, let's do a sponsored research program to get a little bit of proof of concept and develop IP. And we did that. And at the very beginning, I said, look, I'm not an expert in quantum mechanics. I have no business being anything other than an investor in this business. But about a year into it, so this was late 2017, it became apparent that there was a place in this company for someone with general business expertise. And then I have sort of, by osmosis, gotten to know quite a bit about the quanta business now just having been in it for so long. So that's the a summary of, of both how I got into AeroQ and then also how it was founded. Nick, thanks for providing that background. Fascinating. Yeah, liquid helium. So your approach to building quantum hardware, with all due respect, is quite unique, right? As your CTO said, you know, this is a, an approach that, I, for me, being involved in quantum, I have not heard of other companies exploring this kind of technique. So can you, you know, share with our listeners how exactly you're doing this or how it works putting electrons on liquid helium? We always like to say that 
this sounds a lot more exotic than it is. <laughs> so okay. um, it's certainly difficult. Um, but when people hear about it, they they think of of balloons and they think of, you know, sort of uh, helium filled balloons uh, float with little electrons floating inside the balloons. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, Birthday and, parties. Exactly. <laughs> it's actually a lot simpler than that. So okay. <laughs> since the 1960s, folks have been studying the behavior of single electrons uh, floating above liquid helium. And what's really cool um, is that literally is that at ultra low temperatures, absolute zero, uh, helium becomes a, a liquid, um, in, in fact, a, a superfluid. And what you're able, what happens is if you put the electrons in a cell um, and they're floating above a, uh, a substrate, the electron is actually attracted to its own image beneath the helium. And it becomes naturally trapped in a vacuum. And it floats about 15 nanometers above the helium surface. So this is really cool for a couple of reasons. Wow. And, and I'll give two that are relevant to quantum computing. The first is that this is among the, if not the purest system that is known to exist in almost all of nature, because it is simply an electron floating on top of helium in a closed environment. There are no defects. There's you know, no charge noise. It's just a perfectly pure system. And of course, in quantum computing, you're searching for, for the purest possible systems to avoid sources of errors. So the fact that an electron floating on helium is this ideal environment that's what formed the basic, uh, the basis uh, for uh, the Dickman and Platzman paper I mentioned uh, in the late 90s in science uh, that proposes theoretically um, as a qubit platform. And the other really neat thing is because the trapping is natural, you don't need to build um, large trapping, you know, large vacuum devices like ion trapping, for example. So ion trapping is a great technology. It has a lot of benefits, um, but you have to, you know, you have to build vacuum traps, <laughs> you know, with yeah, electrons yeah. and helium, uh, the trapping is, is natural. So because of this and because electrons are so small, this allows you to get a million electrons, which will eventually become qubits in the size of a chip that's about the size of, of your thumbnail. And then the way that it works from there is the substrate, essentially, is a CMOS-produced chip that looks very similar to, you know, any type of, you know, modern processor. And then we have bulk helium that climbs up the surface of uh, the sides of the chip and then forms this thin layer. And then the electrons float right above it. So that's how the technology works. But essentially what it is, is you've got a computer chip at the most basic layer of, of describing it. And then you're putting it in an isolated environment and you're allowing electrons. And then you're putting a layer of liquid helium in it. And this is all very small scale. 
and then you're controlling those electrons to do quantum computing. So this is a perfect environment for quantum computing, and it's also very, very small, which is important because you know we think that modular systems are first generation for quantum computing, and that the ultimate goal of quantum computing, um, yes, this does need to be low temperature. We don't pretend it doesn't, but other than that, you can get a million qubit electron and helium quantum computer in the size of a thumbnail and just put that in the fridge. So a fridge is big, but it's not that big, you know, so ultimately, you know, we think having the ability to put so many qubits on such a small size chip uh, makes it among the most practical technologies in addition to those technical advantages. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. To follow on the thread of sort of Silicon Foundry conversation, so a lot of companies are, quantum companies looking to leverage, you know, we could be called 75 plus years of learnings from CMOS and Silicon Foundry best practices. How are you doing that at AeroQ? So uh, that's a great question. And, you know, something that we think is, is really important. Um, our CTO, Steve Lyon, uh, is a professor at Princeton University, and he uh, came in. He be, got interested in quantum computing in the you know late '90s, early 2000s. But um, since he began at Princeton um, in the late '70s, uh, he really was. I mean, he's a semiconductor physicist, you know. So he's you know someone who an engineer, excuse me, because he's in the he used to be electrical engineering at Princeton. Now it's ECE, electrical and computer engineering. And so he came to this, he came to the whole area of quantum computing with a background in, in thinking about scale. So a lot of folks that come to quantum computing as physicists, their focus is on how can I make the most ideal qubit? And that's important. But where Steve had come to this from was, okay, that's great. You know, there's 10, 20, you know, different ways to build a qubit, but one qubit, 10 qubits, a thousand qubits even, um, you know, that's not what we're looking for ultimately. Ultimately looking for a million qubits or more, as, you know, folks talk about. Mm -hmm. So he kind of backed into the problem by saying, you know, look, he spent, you know, his career in semiconductors as an expert in, in CMOS um, and foundry processes. And so he thought about, you know, which types of chip designs might be compatible with this. So he actually first focused on silicon spin qubits, which was a natural fit where you're using um, electron spins, you know, trapped in, in silicon. And then he pivoted to electrons and helium because you have all of the benefits of spins and silicon, but because the electron is floating freely above the helium as opposed to being in the silicon, even the most the purest silicon in the world has issues, you know, defects, you know, valley splitting, you know, trap charges, and so forth. So by moving the electron out of the silicon, but still using the same CMOS compatible chip as the ultimate layer, you can then get the best of both worlds. So you get uh, the, the ultimate layer of the chip itself is still CMOS compatible, 
Now, I some of my founder friends say, well, wait a minute, you, you use niobium, so I'll call it out here. <laughs> okay. CMOS compatible, let's say CMOS friendly, <laughs> because <laughs> we would okay. have to add niobium to the process, which uh -huh. is not on the line at many uh, <laughs> semiconductor fabs. So, right. um, but you know, again, ultimately, if if we've got a million qubit quantum computer, I think um, foundries would be happy to add niobium. Uh, but yeah, other yeah, than sure. adding niobium to the process, <laughs> um, it's it's pretty much uh, you know standard CMOS compatible. And then we put the the helium just on top of that, and then we control the uh, electrons from there. Wow, terrific! So, as a company building quantum you know computing hardware, the question always arises about SDKs and APIs, right? So wanted to get your take on you know, whether there are certain languages or libraries that work better on your hardware or will work better than some Qiskit or Python or Q-sharp or the Penny Lane libraries or... Yeah, you know, so we have, um, a, you know, I think a, a fairly strong perspective on this as hopefully you'll find interesting. You know, we are, are fully agnostic and we actually spend... Well, I spend a lot of time looking at these libraries um, and, you know, coming from a, a software background, evaluating them just out of curiosity. But ultimately, we at AeroQ are focused 100% on building universal hardware. So we spend no time talking to customers. We spend no time other than my own time just, you know, being aware of the marketplace our, the rest of our team doesn't spend any time, you know, looking at SDKs or thinking about applications, you know, because our goal is to build a universal quantum computer, which, of course, you know, when completed will be compatible with, with anything. So our view is that, you know, look, we're a, a fabulous, you know, semiconductor design company. I mean, that's what we do. Um, so what we do is we work on designing this processor and because this processor is a universal machine, um, we're going to let other folks figure out the applications. And if our view is that, you know, if we can build what we know we can build, you know, which is a very large scale quantum computer with excellent performance metrics, then any type of SDK or application is going to perform well on it because it's just going to be a great, potentially best. You know, I, I don't view quantum as purely winner take all. I think we have a real shot at making the best quantum computer, but I also, our business model doesn't depend on it. Our business success depends on being highly competitive, you know, among the top two or three best by the middle and end of the decade. Yeah. And we're sure we can do that. And then when we do that, you know, really anything is going to work on it because we're building a, uni a universal machine. Thank you for clarifying and building focus on hardware. So the question that technically begs or might beg is, you know, where you are on the TRL scale, right? so technology readiness level. Do you have a working version or when might you have one? And how do you think that will work in terms of both your solution as well as, you know, at a meta level, quantum computing in general. I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think TRL and quantum computing, it applies, but with some exceptions. So quantum computing is the type of field, and, and here I'm specifically talking about hardware, both our, our own and others. And, you know, so as to not dodge your own question, you know, electrons and helium is 
still earlier in development than many other platforms. So folks have proven that you can build single qubits using this platform. Um, and then, you know, our next step is a two qubit gate. But because of this compatibility with CMOS and the intrinsic purity of the system, we believe that we're going to be able to go from two to a thousand qubits in the space of, you know, a year, year and a half. And that is why we believe in this technology. Otherwise, there would be no point <laughs> because, you know, other companies have over a hundred qubits and, you know, we don't have any qubits. So what's the difference there? Um, but I think both. So, so that's where we are, you know, but we do have a, um, we have a chip with micro channels that can hold these electrons. We have trapped hundreds of electrons in a linear chain, which is non-trivial, of course. And we do have exquisite control at the single electron layer. So this is not an idea. So I would say that, you know, we are, you know, at the four or five stage, you know, we are very close to demonstrating this. But then what I think is going to happen is you're going to go with our technology and some others. They're just going to start to work at a certain point. And then you're going to go from, you know, your TRL five, you know, to the TRL nine um, and kind of skip some of those intermediate steps. And the reason for that is not just because of the nature of the technology, but also the nature of the ecosystem. So a few minutes earlier, I talked about, well, you know, we're not focusing on software applications because other people are. And what I really like about quantum computing right now as an industry and as an ecosystem, because so much of this is driven by academia, is that yeah. you've got folks that are working on, I, I like to view it as a three-legged stool. You've got error correction, you've got more efficient algorithms, and you have better hardware. And my optimistic view is that all of this is going to come together and we're going to have a kind of aha moment where some suddenly something is going to work. And it's not just going to because it's not just going to be due to a single company or a single university creating some magic breakthrough. It's going to be because of this collaborative effort that you're going to see a program work. But again, let's say the first commercial usefulness is demonstrated by, let's give it to, you know, to Google, who's currently <laughs> the lead. Let's say okay. Google does that. That's not only going to be because of Google's hardware. It's going to be because Google will be, you know, using, um, will have great hardware. They'll be using an efficient algorithm, I assume, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. something that may or may not exist today. And there will be benefit from advancements in error correction. So long story short, I think quantum computing, because of the ecosystem, is kind of primed, you know, where everyone right now was, you know, stuck at a level of four or five. So much work is going on in the background that once we hit that inflection point, you know, we're really going to be going up to an eight or nine really quickly. Yeah. Now, thank you for sharing that perspective. I think it's great insight. I read that you're a member of the World Economic Forum's Quantum Computing Governance Project. So I'd like to learn more about who are the other members and 
maybe what are the current projects or initiatives that uh, that project is focused on? I'm actually involved in quantum computing ethics very broadly. And I, you know, can say with some certainty that um, AeroQ really started the conversation on quantum computing ethics back in in 2018. Um, and there's a Gizmodo story to prove this. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, but, good. <laughs> you know, from the very beginning, we realized, you know, look, there's tremendous commercial opportunity here, but the same reason that there's a commercial opportunity that also creates a level of existential risk because the technology is so powerful. And there is a school of thought that would say, well, we don't know what this will be good for yet. We do not know the applications. That is true. I do not deny that. And furthermore, they say, we also don't know the timescale on which the applications will exist. I don't deny that either. (laughs) But our perspective is that if you wait to develop an ethical framework for quantum computing until you have real applications, then that might be a little bit too late. And the cat's already out of the bag. So, you know, we're not trying to hype this up and say, oh my gosh, we're going to break RSA next year because we're not going to break RSA for a very long time unless something really surprising happens. But we have what I view as a great opportunity. Um, And we released a white paper about this in 2018 um, that's it up at qcethics.org. And this is what was covered in that Gizmodo piece. And then that has been built upon by the, certainly the, you know, the world economic forum has their own quantum ethics group, which is great. Um, they released a report on it, which includes all the stakeholders and, uh, you know, next steps. Um, I believe this is available for public download. If you go to the world economic forum, uh, quantum governance initiative And there are other efforts uh, across the world. So the Quantum Daily, um, Quantum Insider, they did a video about quantum ethics. So there are all these disparate efforts around the world. So what I'm thinking about now, and a lot of folks are thinking about, is how do we consolidate these efforts? And is there a way to give, you know, some teeth to them? Um, Because... I mean, I'll be very blunt, you know, I think if you look at AI ethics, you well, know, yeah. that really hasn't gone anywhere. You know, yeah. it's just a f- bunch of folks trading papers. And um, I mean, people are trying very hard, but we don't have any type of teeth in, you know, how artificial intelligence should be applied ethically. And that's a problem um, in my view. And I think that occurred because no thought was given to it until applications already existed. And just for for thought for some listeners, you know, there was in 1975, the U.S. government realized that recombinant DNA might have some really thorny use cases. So there was a conference called the Asilomar Conference um, on recombinant DNA in 1975, where folks stopped working on the technology for a bit. And I'm not suggesting we stop working in quantum, but what happened was a group of folks came together and included the scientists involved in the work, as well as policymakers, you know, lawyers, ethicists, this multidisciplinary group. And they came up with guidelines for how recombinant DNA should be used. 
And, and those guidelines exist until this day. And this was before there were any meaningful use cases of that technology. So I think there's precedent for this. Um, and Eric Schmidt himself, uh, you know, former Google chair, uh, he, he, he mentioned this at, the, at Q2B in, um, I believe it was 2020. He said the same thing. He said, we need a quantum asilomar. So um, I, I'm not the only one who thinks this. It's not a crazy idea. Um, but right now we need to get all of the stakeholders together um, because currently there are different folks in different countries and, and whatnot. So I, I think it's a dual use technology. You know, I'm really excited about the applications in healthcare. You know, I lost my father a couple of weeks ago and I do believe that, you know, there are medications that, you know, might've prolonged his life. Um, this might be five, 10, 20 years away, but I'm really excited about quantum computing for new medicines. I'm not so excited about quantum computing for code breaking <laughs> or, or, <laughs> yeah. or one more thing I'll give you really quickly is how do we distribute these resources? So if quantum computing is simply sold to whoever can pay the most, then, you know, we've got researchers, at universities who have breakthrough cancer drugs that they want to do modeling for. And you have a hedge fund who has more capital. And I'm not saying hedge funds shouldn't use quantum computers. They should be allowed to. Um, but how do we make sure that use is somewhat broadly and fairly distributed? So there's a yeah. lot of interesting questions there. Well, no, thank you for calling that out because I think you're exactly right. I mean, hopefully learnings from the challenges that AI has faced around ethical um, you know, monitoring and management policy and regulatory conversations around AI. So if we can get ahead of it. It's great that the World Economic Forum is focused on this. And I encourage listeners to check out that article on Gizmodo and or uh, find the white paper, right? If you look up quantum computing ethics um, and uh, you type in either AeroQ or a World Economic Forum, in both cases, uh, you'll, you'll get some interesting results. But um, yeah, our paper's up on qcethics.org. And then I believe if you just Google World Economic Forum Quantum Governance, uh, you'll get their uh, paper, which is excellent. Um, so we've got We've got the we've got ideas here, but we got to execute them, and we have to execute them in advance of this technology fully coming to fruition, and that is an unsolved challenge. So, as you said, you're involved in kind of a broad range of quantum-related uh, activities, if you will. I read that you're active in the VC space still with like QIS Angels and Atlantic Quantum. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what companies you're looking at and what kinds of technologies you're looking to support? It's funny, and, and I should clarify, this is so funny. Um, my wife and I had been using the name Atlantic Quantum as a, a holding company to look at quantum investments since 2019, but there's a company now called Atlantic Quantum. So I want to clarify mm. that those are okay. separate and I am not involved in Nothing against Atlantic Quantum, but I it's I don't want to <laughs> present myself as an investor in this new company called Atlantic Quantum, just to be okay. clear. Um, so, okay, duly um, noted. Yeah, so I originally came to AeroQ as thinking I was going to be an angel investor. And I thought, and I had been looking at doing some other angel investment type deals in quantum computing. Um, but knowing that venture capital funds have 
you know, after four to five years, they begin to run out of patience, which is fair enough. I didn't really see a lot of opportunities that were ready. In fact, AeroQ itself has not taken any venture capital until extremely recently. Um, we have mm-hmm. a round that's going to be announced in a couple of weeks, but we were funded by, you know, uh, angel investors, um, family offices uh, up until now. So we sort of ate our own dog food in this perception that it was a little bit too early until now to invest in in quantum computing in particular. Yeah. Uh, but some friends and I had always been chatting about, you know, when is the right time to put together a group of people to collectively diligence and invest in deals. And we decided that that time was, was right. So about, you know, four or five months ago, we formed a group called QIS Angels. And QIS, of course, quantum information science, you know, we're looking at anything quantum beyond computing. So we'll look at quantum computing, quantum networking, quantum sensing. We're doing our first deal now. Um, it is in quantum network optimization. Mm-hmm. And got about 15 folks now, you know, hope to grow that organically. Um, and most of those folks are already involved in quantum computing. And it, it brings up the question of conflict, but in, in our view, you know, quantum is such a huge industry, right? Yeah. Look, if a company came to our group that was doing electrons and helium quantum computing, I would obviously recuse myself. But, you know, a company doing quantum networking or quantum sensing or even a company developing a different type of hardware, you know, I don't necessarily view that as a conflict because Mm. it would be up to them if they would want me to see the deal or not if they were building universal hardware. And, you know, that's why we're transparent with who is in the group. And if the group is interested in a deal, we'll say, here are the people. And if you don't want the deck to go to this person, let us know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, we think having folks that are in the space is a value add. And we're particularly interested in helping folks who are academics looking to do spin outs because, you know, we have, you know, a lot of expertise in that, um, not only with Eric, but other folks in the group. And there are right ways and wrong ways to do that. So, yeah. you know, and we're also, I mean, we kind of view ourselves as, you know, founders and, and underdogs ourselves. So we also want to make sure that, you know, these folks are, you know, not taken advantage of by larger organizations. And I do not mean universities, by the way, um, uh-huh. you know, but we want to make sure that, you know, everyone is, is kind of uh, academics getting into industry for the first time yeah. um, are not yeah. bitten by any wolves. I yeah. would say. Great. No, that's great. So Nick, I read that you're moving your headquarters to Chicago to locations called the Terminal in Humboldt Park. So congratulations on that. Um, so you'll you. be joining Duality, which is the nation's first quantum startup accelerator established uh, last year in Chicago. David Ashalam, who I'm sure our listeners know, founder of the Chicago Quantum Exchange, was quoted as saying he's delighted to have ArrowQ joining the Chicago quantum community. Uh, so when are you moving in, and how will the new space help you expand the business? We're really excited about Chicago. Um, we did conduct a national search for our headquarters and I'm from Chicago originally as 
talked about at the beginning. So I did perhaps have some bias, um, but <laughs> yeah. you know, our professors are from Princeton and Michigan State, uh, so we really could have built this anywhere. Um, so we looked at New York. We looked uh, briefly at, at Texas. You know, we looked at you know California, of course, Chicago, Michigan, and ultimately, we think something really special is happening in Chicago. Yeah. Again, I'm, I I say this I think without being biased because this is the reason we decided to come. You know, so we made our <laughs> own decision based on looking at and saying, "Huh, you know, something's happening here." And I think a lot of you know quantum computing is, especially as a hardware company, I mean, it's really all about talent. So for us, it's incredibly important that we have access to top talent, and Chicago has that in spades. Um, so they have the Chicago Quantum Exchange, which connects the national labs, Argonne, Fermilab, um, all the universities in the space. And additionally, you have a, um, a lot of businesses there uh, who have folks who, are, who have skills relevant to quantum computing, i.e. nanofabrication experience. Um, and those folks are also part of the talent pool. So you've got this, you know, kind of best of both worlds because you have, uh, folks who you can recruit directly from all of these great universities, as well as folks from all of these companies. And we like to stress that, you know, you don't need to know about electrons and helium really, uh, to join AeroQ. The roles that we're hiring for now involve nanofabrication, you know, finite element modeling, things like this, which are much easier to find, especially in a big city like Chicago. Uh, so we really thought, you know, the support of the Chicago Quantum Exchange, you know, which again, we love how they're, they're supporting Duality, which is an accelerator program, you know, so I, I think that's going to help create some, you know, great, you know, younger companies. But I mean, we're looking at, we're, we viewed it as, 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 a, as a talent play, ultimately. Um, yeah. I think you said July you're moving in. Is that right? July, uh, there'll be a, an announcement yes. or a celebration or both? <laughs> yeah, you know, with construction, you know, a knock on wood here, you, you never know. But we're, we're, yeah. we are hoping to have the doors open in, uh, in July. Uh, uh, we've been doing construction uh, at the terminal since January. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a big project. I mean, we're building a full measurement lab. But we hope to have it completed very and soon now. Will you, will you be building some kind of foundry capability there? Or are you going to contract that out? How does that work? Excellent question. No, we are not building our own clean room. What we are going to do um, is we are essentially leasing space from the Pritzker Nanofab at the University of Chicago. So the way that it's going to work is we have our own full measurement lab. So we have our own, you know, we've got the big fridges, we have all of the equipment to do the quantum measurement of these chips. Um, but for fabrication, um, and, and the reason we're not building our own fab in addition to, and it's not even so much that it costs a lot of money, it's that it, it takes a lot of time also to build. And ultimately, as we talked about earlier, you know, we think that we'll be able to produce at scale using standard foundries. So what we're doing is we're essentially hand building the chips 
using this leased space from the University of Chicago in the meantime. And then we're measuring them in our own lab in Humboldt Park. And then once we find what works, then the idea is that, you know, we will sort of never have to build our own foundry, but we'll say, okay, we've, we found out what we fabricated it by hand here without essentially, you know, paying a leasing fee. And that's great. And then we measured it in our own lab. So we did that. Now we know what the design is that works. And ultimately that will be able to be fabricated um, in a standard fab that again, shout out to my fab friends. Yes. <laughs> would involve a niobium. Process. But other than that, would be able to be done commercially. Come to the question, sort of the million dollar question or the sixty-four thousand dollar question for people who are old enough to remember that TV show. But the <laughs> idea is around clients. Now you'd said you know the technology is evolving and still early days, but wondering if you're having any kind of sort of preliminary conversations with potential clients or users or how is that working? I mean, you know, that you'll be in touch with when the technology is mature enough to deliver value to their business model or so the way that we look at this is you know again building a, a universal computer um you know we well it is what it sounds like you know once we get the performance metrics again the idea behind this chip is that you're going to have the best of all worlds in terms of very long coherence times all-to-all connectivity mobile qubits um ultimately fast gate speeds and the ability to scale very quickly. Um, and so we actually view the availability of cloud providers as core to taking the burden of biz dev off of us as a business. So what I mean by this is in 2016, if we were looking at building, you know, before there were quantum cloud providers and you know, we were like, gosh, you know, are we going to have to build these on-prem machines and we're going to have to go out and sell them ourselves? And if we had to, we would have, but that's a big lift. So the way that we view it now is that all of the, we, we are very friendly with um, and very close with the cloud, quantum cloud providers. So in some ways, you know, that, not in some ways, but that is the conduit to customers. So what, what we're doing is we're essentially saying, look, we're gonna we're focusing on our work, which is building this the chip that will exceed, um, it'll meet or exceed all performance metrics. And then when you put that on the cloud, customers are going to choose us because of superior performance. So you're gonna log on to AWS, you're gonna log on to, to Microsoft, and you know you're you're going to go with the company that offers you the best performance so we're focusing on how can we offer the best performance and in many many industries and i have learned this lesson myself the hard way you know if you build it they will come does not apply that is almost always a fallacy but yeah. in quantum computing <laughs> given that it's going to be all about hardware performance, number one. Number two, that customers are already building their own applications and they know what to do with it. And three, you have these cloud providers that have these customer contracts. We believe that there is a successful model to develop best-in-class hardware, 
connect it with the cloud providers, again, that we have close relationships with. And ultimately, uh, business will then come to AeroQ because uh, clients of those cloud providers uh, will be choosing AeroQ. Yeah. So Nick, we've come to the end of our time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, at this point, I usually like to ask my guests to sort of look into the crystal ball and um, take a minute and just give me a quick uh, perspective on where you think AeroQ might be in five years or even 10 years. In five years, uh, we'll have well over um, a thousand uh, qubits uh, that will be all to all connected, um, have uh, coherence times in excess of 10 seconds with a roadmap to go to millions uh, using standard FAB. Um, and then in 10 years, uh, we feel strongly that we will have uh, millions of qubits at that point uh, with fast gate speeds. And in terms of the industry, like I said before, I don't know if there is going to be a single winner until the 2030s. You know, I think a lot of companies are going to be kind of leapfrogging each other until then and will be among that pack. I think the pack is going to thin out. And I think in five years, you're going to have a few technologies that we have today are going to be first gen. Now, that doesn't mean that they will disappear. Perhaps they're still offered on the cloud just at a lower price point. Um, but then we view our technologies and a few others as being second generation. Um, so I don't want to go into, you know, exactly what we think is first and second, but we do think that, you know, we are not the only second generation hardware platform. And there are others, um, and one of which I'll say is, is we, th we like neutral atoms a lot, for example. Um, you know, so we think that, you know, we're going to get to the space of kind of, you know, in 2025, you know, we look to be, hope to be advancing kind of to the front of this pack. And then between 2025 and then the next 10 years after that, you know, you're going to have a bunch of second generation players and maybe even some new technologies, um, you know, fighting it out for dominance. And, and uh, again, I think multiple companies will succeed. And I think it's going to be a really exciting time. And the last thing that I hope for is that, you know, we do so in a way that it sounds cliche, but, you know, ultimately maximizes benefit to humanity and minimizes harm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Nick. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'll point them to the website, the AeroQ website. I'm sure you're hiring, so I'm, especially as you're growing and moving to Chicago. I would encourage people to look at your career or job page uh, for opportunities. And thank you again. It's been delightful. Yes, thank you again. Um, you know, we always are looking for folks. Um, even if you don't have a job open, we always like to, that might apply, we'd still like to hear from you. Uh, so send a resume to talent at arrowq.com. And on Twitter, we have, uh, we are at QC Hardware uh, to kind of uh, reinforce that we're just about hardware. Uh, but thanks again for the time. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Thanks again, Nick, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Nick. I want to remind you that our next Inside Quantum Technology event called Quantum Enterprise is taking place in San Diego, May 10 through 12. This will again be a hybrid event, so you can join us either in person or remotely. 
Go to iqtevent.com slash San Diego for more information. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.